This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, looking this morning at verses 18 through 22. I think, as a, and I've said this, as a, I think as a general staple for preaching, preaching through books of the Bible or sections of books of the Bible is the way to go. There are a lot of things to commend preaching through books of the Bible. It spares you the preacher riding his own hobby horses. It uh, helps us to cover scriptural truths and scriptural proportions. There are reasons that would argue against preaching through books of the Bible, however, and the passage that's before us this morning is one of those reasons. I knew when I picked up 1 Peter we would eventually come to this passage today, uh, and so we are going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22, but um, be brave, this too is part of God's Word and is profitable for us. So let's look this morning at 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for the scriptures and pray that uh, as we study this portion today, uh, we ask that your spirit would give us light. We pray, Father, that in the study and contemplation of this text. You would feed our souls, and you would equip us to live for you this week, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. No less a biblical scholar and no less confident a personality than Martin Luther said of these words of the text before us today, This is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. You know, Peter, toward the end of 2 Peter, goes on to comment on Paul's letters and how some people take those letters and twist them to their own destruction. Well, Peter says of Paul's letters there that they contain some things that are hard to understand, and Paul's letters do. 
But I'm not sure Paul's letters contain anything that is as hard to understand as what Peter himself has to say here in verses 19 and 20 of his own letter. The difficulties and perplexity in this text is considerable. A lot of questions that can be raised as we look at these verses, and we'll raise them and talk about them, at least some of them, as we go through this text. But we do need to back up just a bit and acknowledge that while we may find difficulty settling with certainty on the meaning of some of the details, the overall point that Peter is making here is quite plain. And as always, when studying the Scriptures, context is our friend. Notice uh, verse 17, the verse just before our passage, Peter says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And Peter has been dealing with this whole theme of how we as Christians living in the world should bear a good witness to those who are around us, those who are not believers, and we should be prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake. We should, uh, if we are going to suffer, make sure it is because of our faithfulness as Christians and not for our uh, reasons of our own uh, doing, bringing suffering, bringing misery upon ourselves because of our sin or because of wrongdoing or because of uh, our making ourselves uh, irritable or obnoxious to those around us. And so Peter sort of sounds the theme. And then he says in verse 18, for Christ also suffered. And so what we see here is Peter's just continuing with this theme of being willing to suffer for doing good, being willing to suffer as Christians and not for wrongdoing on our part. But then we come to the end of our passage, chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So the verse before our text and the verse after our text point us to the fact that Peter is still talking about how we as Christians should be prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake. And if we suffer, it should be for righteousness' sake because of our faithfulness to Christ, our loyalty to him, our unwillingness to compromise with the world, but to be faithful to Christ. And essentially what Peter is getting at here is saying that the victory Christ has won over sin, over death, but also over powers of evil, evil spirits, evil forces, motivates us to be faithful to him, to be willing to suffer for wrong, uh, or rather for righteousness sake and not for wrongdoing. Now, as we look at these verses, 18 through 22, uh, Peter directs our attention to Four considerations I want us to think about. Four considerations that do and should help motivate us to be willing to take flack from our unbelieving friends, classmates, neighbors, to be willing to suffer, to be willing to return good for evil, to be willing to pray for those who persecute us, to bless our enemies. Four considerations based on the victory of Christ that motivate us toward that. The first one, uh, I'm happy to say in verse 18, is plain enough. Uh, suffering of Jesus himself. Peter points us to the suffering of Jesus as something that should motivate us to be willing to suffer in his name, for his name, ourselves. Notice verse 18. For Christ also suffered 
once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, some translations there, instead of suffer, might say died. We think Christ died for our sins. And that's true, but it seems more likely that Peter actually used the word suffer here. Because that's a favorite word of his. That word occurs several times in this letter. And Paul and Peter, rather, in verse 17, has just been talking about suffering for doing good. And by parallel, he says, for Christ also suffered. And he did suffer for our sins. It's a word that certainly includes his death, but it's broader. It includes the, the mockery. It includes the, the beatings. It includes the ridicule the humiliation, all that went along with with what he endured, and even more broadly than that, his whole state of humiliation in his incarnation, and and taking to himself a human body and a human nature, living here in this world. All of that could be included when Peter says he suffered once for sins, uh, but you can certainly narrow it down to those specific sufferings involved in his passion, and, and certainly including his death. And notice what he says. He suffered once for sins. When Christ suffered and died for us, he accomplished the atonement for our sins. He paid for our sins. It was a once for all time thing. So that if you are in Christ today, then your sins have been paid for. There is no further atonement. There's no way you can make it up to God by trying to do better or anything like that. Christ has paid for our sins once for all time. He also says, the righteous for the unrighteous. You know, in that, in that one phrase is packed, a, is packed a world of theology. The righteous for the unrighteous. That, that holy exchange of Christ in the sinner's place, suffering and dying, and the sinner now in Christ's place, clothed in his righteousness, atoned for by his blood, inheriting heaven itself. Adopted as a child of God, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the cross. That's the gospel. The righteous gave himself in the place of the unrighteous. The unrighteous gets what the righteous one, Christ, deserved. The favor of God. Adoption. uh, Glory. That's the gospel. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. That was his purpose. was to reconcile us. You know, sin has alienated us. It separates us from God. Sin comes between us and God. But Christ gave himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, to bring us back together, to reunite us in that relationship with God where we were created to have. There's nothing vague, nothing difficult, nothing unclear about verse 18. And even you you go a step further, being put to death in the flesh. That's how he did it. He suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. That's how he accomplished it. If only Peter just put a period there and stopped, you know, in end of chapter 3. But he didn't do that. But before we move on, it's worth considering the fact that Peter puts before you as a prime motivator to be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake that Christ himself also suffered for you. Again, Christ not calling us to do anything that he himself hasn't done and wasn't willing to do. And it's also worth noting that you will never suffer for Jesus' sake anywhere near the degree to which Jesus suffered for your sake. The point is not to put you in his debt, although you are. The point is simply to set before you something that would motivate you, that Christ so loved you, he was willing to suffer for you. 
certainly we should be willing to stand with him and suffer for his name's sake. So the suffering of Jesus. But Peter didn't stop there. He did continue. And so with the end of verse 18 and verse 20, a second consideration is the the resurrection and triumph of Jesus. That, too, should be a motivating factor. Now, let's look at the language here. I want to look at this a little bit generally and then go more into the words. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, when the ark was being prepared. Now, let me raise some questions for you uh, about this text, just to kind of give you a sense of the complexities here. Uh, these, These aren't all of the questions, but are some of them, just to help you think. Because when you read a passage of Scripture, it's always good to come with these kinds of questions, not to just let the words, you know, go in one ear and out the other, or in one eye and out the other, but to to think about them, to question them. Here's some questions. Made alive in the Spirit. Well, Spirit is sometimes a difficult word in the Greek New Testament because they didn't have capitalization. Uh, The Greek word was pneuma, like pneumonia or a pneumatic tire. Uh, The word could could have to do with air or breath or spirit. And not having capital letters, sometimes it's not easy to know whether this is a reference to a spirit like your own spirit, small case S, or the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And often the, the context makes it pretty plain, makes it pretty clear, but not always. And so here some translations like the ESV say made alive in the spirit. Some like the, the, uh, like the ESV, some like the NIV would say made alive by the, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, capital S, which is also a, certainly a viable way of, of translating it. So right there, there's some question, but that's only the beginning because verse 19 says in which, or if it's the Holy Spirit, in whom or by whom he went, went where, and proclaimed Proclaimed what? To the spirits, what spirits? In prison. Prison? What prison? Peter obviously is assuming some knowledge on the part of his readers, things that they would have been familiar with, so that they would have had some idea what he's referring to here, that simply is, for the most part, lost to us. Maybe. I'll give you a a, a little bit more on that in just a second, but let's continue. To the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Well, he gives us a hint as to that. When was that? Well, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Noah, that's going back a very long way in the Old Testament. Now, let me give you three general views of what is going on here uh, that have arisen over the years of church history as people have wrestled with this text, what is, what's happening here. Uh, and then we'll go back and I'll, I'll sort of give you my, I'll give you my sort of view of it. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Uh, but uh, I think I can't come down with too much dogmatism on this text. Three basic views of what is happening here, what Peter is describing. One view is that what Peter is saying is that back in the days of Noah, uh, perhaps through Noah, 
Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, was there preaching the gospel to those in their disobedience in the days of Noah. Uh, in other words, in his pre-incarnate state, as, as the Son of the, of the Trinity, the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, through Noah, was, and by his Spirit, was declaring the gospel, declaring or calling to repentance through Noah those who lived in his day. That's one view that involves Jesus. It's referring to a ministry of Jesus back in the days of Noah around the time of Genesis 6, the passage Mike read earlier, our Old Testament reading. Uh, the second view has to do with the idea that this is describing what happened between Jesus' death and his resurrection. Uh, the view of the harrowing of hell, that Jesus goes into hell and declares his victory to uh, the spirits who were there in prison, uh, perhaps declaring his victory and triumph over them, uh, although some would say, well, he's there to, to declare to them the gospel that they could believe and be saved. Well, there are a couple of problems with that view. And by the way, some have attributed the view in the Apostles' Creed, which we recited earlier, uh, he descended into hell as related to this. But it's worth noting that that view arose really more out of theological considerations. What about those who died before Christ? Where was Christ between his death and burial? That it really did out of this text. This text was sort of connected to that later. It's also worth noting that the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 50, uh, expounds that expression in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. It's having to do simply as sort of a... a Follow-up to he, he died and was buried, the idea of Jesus uh, being in Hades or in the, under the power of death for three days without saying he specifically went into hell itself. And that's the confessions or the catechism's understanding of that expression. But that's a second view here. A couple of problems with it. One is the Bible makes it plain that once you die, there is no possibility of salvation. In other words, if you die in faith in Christ, you were saved. But if you die apart from Christ, you were lost, and there is no second chance. Uh, this is as close as you will get to the Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory, and yet it, it's pretty fanciful to draw something like that out of a passage like this. The other problem with that view is if Christ is there to declare his triumph, it's kind of a strange time to do it because he hasn't been raised yet. He's still in his humiliation. He's still under the power of death. Easter Sunday hasn't come yet. So why would he be declaring his triumph? Yes, he atoned for sins on the cross, but apart from the resurrection, there's no triumph. There's no victory. So it seems like a strange time to be parading his victory when he has yet to rise from the dead. So a couple of problems with that view that, that to me, uh, make it somewhat untenable. There's a third view and perhaps a little bit more recent view, that when it says he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And by the way, that, that, that expression sort of rules out saying, well, you know, his body died, but his spirit lived. Because it doesn't say his spirit lived. It said that he was made alive in the spirit. You know, if we were just separating body and soul, he, his soul would have continued. It wouldn't have to be made alive. And so because of that language, some have suggested that what it's describing here is, is the flesh, is Christ's pre-death existence, his earthly existence in his humanity, uh, not sinful, but subject to the weakness of human flesh, human uh, existence, 
the, 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 the fallenness of it, though not in his own body or being, versus his resurrection body, his glorified state. Uh, flesh here representing his pre-death and resurrection existence, being in the spirit, uh, describing now who he is in his glorified state, which would be true of us as well, although with us it includes our sinfulness and our proneness to, to sickness and death. Uh, but, but, but the flesh being his pre-resurrection existence here on earth, and now in the spirit his glorified, resurrected existence. So a significant change. He was put to death in the flesh, but he is made alive in the spirit, in the spiritual realm, now raised in a glorified resurrection existence. And then verse 19 says, in which, and the ESV, for all it likes to claim that it's essentially literal, leaves out what I think is a key word here. If that word were included, it would read this way, in which also he went, or at which time also he went. Time would be included there, but it would, could be a way of rendering it. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And so according to this third view, the idea is, is more that Christ declared victory over these spirits at the time of his ascension into heaven, after his resurrection, when he has been raised, where that triumph has occurred, and then as he is ascending to heaven uh, in, in his victory, somewhere along the way he declares to these fallen beings in prison his victory, his triumph, that their days are numbered, that the victory has been won. Now, this raises another question. Who are these spirits? went and proclaimed, and we presume proclaimed there uh, to be his victory, although it doesn't actually say that, but what else would he declare in that case? To the spirits in prison, who were they? Are they human spirits? Are they fallen angelic spirits? I tend to incline toward fallen angelic spirits for a couple of reasons. One, it seems like if we were talking about people, he would say the spirits of those who formerly did not obey. But he doesn't say that. He said the spirits. But there's also another reason, and that's the use of, of, of Scripture here in some other places. Turn over to Second uh, Peter chapter 2. If you're getting lost in the details, I'm going to summarize this again just briefly uh, after we look at some of this, maybe pull some of it together. Second Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, oh, he's talking about fallen angelic spirits imprisoned. He immediately jumps to talking about Noah. And that, that reference should, I think, inform how we understand the passage we're looking at in First Peter. Because it's so close. There's so much there that seems similar and yet sheds some light on who are the nature, uh, what is the nature of these spirits he's referring to. He did not spare angels when they sinned. What we would call today demons, Satan and his demons. But has them in darkness and change to be kept imprisoned until judgment. And then one other reference is uh, Jude uh, verse 6. And you know that 2 Peter 2 and Jude, the book of Jude, uh, which is just one chapter, have a lot in common. Jude 6, 
says, if the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities and so forth. Well, he doesn't refer to Noah there, but to Sodom and Gomorrah. So as we look at those passages, you know, go back to 1 Peter 3, and he talks not about the spirits of those who disobey, but just the spirits who disobey. It doesn't clarify entirely, but it at least leads me to think he's talking about these fallen angelic beings, spirits, not the souls or spirits of people, but spirits themselves, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, we read earlier Genesis 6, which I think is what this has in mind, what Peter has in mind here. The problem is Genesis 6, those first few verses, are rather challenging as well. Whether you're talking about the line of the godly, the seed of the woman, the line of the wicked, the seed of the serpent intermingling, whether you're talking about uh, demonic spirits uh, involved with human beings, uh, whether you're talking about demonic spirits uh, possessing people, influencing people, and involved in these unions that produce this offspring. Difficult to get at, passage for another day. But at least to say, it leads me to think that there were demonic spirits, fallen angels, involved in that uh, situation in Genesis chapter 6. Now, Peter may also have in mind an old Jewish book called Enoch that refers to what's going on in Genesis 6 and talks about some of the same things Peter's referring to here, but I don't think that's essential to getting at what Peter is saying, although that may have been some background they had and he had that we may not have that might help illumine the passage a little bit. So let's sort of recap and then move on. To recap, three views. That Peter's referring to Jesus through Noah, perhaps, declaring, uh, calling people to repentance back in his day sort of a pre-incarnate ministry of Jesus, uh, that it's describing the time between Jesus' death and his resurrection when Jesus goes and declares his victory, presumably to those fallen spirits, uh, that he has triumphed, that he has died, and what that means. The third view, that he was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, has to do with that change from his previous existence and his humanity before his death and resurrection to now his glorified body, in the age of the spirit, that eschatological time, which you and I share in too, by the way, as new creations in Christ, now made alive by the spirit, now citizens of heaven, now citizens of the age to come. That it's that change that Peter is describing here, and Christ at some point proclaims or declares his triumph to these fallen spirits, that they've been defeated, that he has won the victory and that their judgment is absolutely certain. I'm inclined toward that third view, uh, although through church history, you know, there have certainly been very uh, knowledgeable and godly and and, and orthodox scholars who have held uh, the other two as well. And uh, perhaps, at least in my case, that's about as confident as I can be in looking at these verses. So let's move on to something I can be a little more confident about. He goes into talking about, in verse 20, uh, they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The first motivating factor is the suffering of Jesus himself. The second is his resurrection and his triumph. Because whatever else we get out of those verses, I think they have to do with Christ's triumph over the powers of evil. That no matter how scary they might seem, no matter how, many, how violent or how evil, evil they might, might be, they are defeated, and Christ declares that victory. The third motivating factor is the significance of our own baptism. Verse 21. He talks about Noah and his family there with him in the ark, eight people total, brought safely through water, and Peter says baptism corresponds to this. There's a, there's a similarity, there's a likeness there. What is the likeness? Well, baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. Now, let's go back to baptism now saves you. Does baptism save you? No. Is Peter wrong here? Is the Bible in error? No. Peter is simply using baptism as a shorthand way to say everything that we are in Christ, that we have in Christ, much as Paul talks about that in Romans 6, the other passage we read earlier in the service. Uh, the baptism itself doesn't save you, but what baptism represents does. And Peter draws this connection with the water of the flood and Noah and his family being in the ark, uh, being saved by that very water that brought judgment on the earth. Now, baptism, the water represents our covenant with Christ, our cleansing in Christ. Uh, it points us to the cross, which on the one hand declares the judgment of God on those who are apart from Christ. Because this is what's coming to them if they're not in Christ. But that very same cross is what saves us. The waters of baptism represent the cleansing that saves us. So just as the flood was an act of God's judgment that both judged the wicked and through the floating ark saved that remnant. So in baptism, the waters of baptism declare a judgment on those who are outside of, of Christ. They are, un, are under the judgment of God. But that same water symbolizes the cleansing, the forgiveness that, it, that redeems us. And not just the outward sign. Peter says not just removal of dirt from the body. That's not what we're talking about here. But rather a, an appeal to God for a good conscience. On the one hand, because of our righteousness in Christ, but also because of our obedience as baptized believers, we're set apart from the world. We live differently from the world. If you don't, and if you have no concern to live differently from the world, then I challenge whether you are actually saved or not. Conscience is important. Uh, Peter had just made reference to that in the passage before this. Verse 16, having a good conscience. So when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. Your baptism, whether you remember it, baptized as a young person or an adult, even if you don't remember it, baptized as an infant, puts upon you an obligation to be a covenant keeper, to walk in faith and obedience with the Lord. That, too, is a motivating factor, because that very baptism that represents your salvation also rep represents judgment on those outside of Christ. That cross that is your redemption is the indication of the reality and the severity of the wrath of God on all who do not take refuge in Christ by faith. So the suffering of Christ himself, his own example, uh, the triumph of Christ as described there in those verses, uh, our own baptism, and then finally the ascension and reign of Jesus should be a motivating factor to you to stand with him when it costs. Notice uh, verse 22. 
uh, 21 ends through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus is at the right hand of God. He has received the place of honor. He has received the place of glory. And he is reigning there and will reign, as the scriptures say, until every enemy is under his feet. As Peter says, angels, authorities, powers having been subject to him. If you are a believer, even though the powers of hell may seem to have you in their crosshairs, even though horrible things may happen that cause you to question, is God good? Does God care? Does God rule? Is God there at all? Peter reminds us, angels, authorities, powers are subject to him. There's nothing they can do to you or anyone else apart from the permission, the reign of Christ. He is sovereign over them. He has won that victory through his death and resurrection on the cross. Now, he has it by virtue of who he is, but by virtue of who you are in your sins, having declared allegiance to Satan, he's won you back through his death and resurrection. And so there's nothing the powers of hell can do to you. And let's face it, when persecution comes, when blood is flowing, it's a hellish thing. We have to remember that those things even are subject to the reign of Christ. And while they may kill the body, they cannot destroy the soul. And so that, too, is a motivating factor to remain faithful. Consider the big picture. They, too, are under the reign of Christ. And so while this in its details can be a pretty difficult passage, no doubt about it, the, the overall point is quite clear. The victory of Christ in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his reign, in the anticipation of his return, which Peter doesn't mention, but is also a factor, motivates us to be faithful. In short, you are on the winning side. Why would you give up? Why would you quit? Why would you sell out and go over to the losers? You see, the victory of Christ motivates us to remain faithful when you were called upon to suffer for righteousness sake, when you were called upon to suffer because you are a Christian. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would be motivated to do that as we think about these things. Father, we pray that you would impress them deeply on our heart to recognize that Christ has won the victory and all hell knows it. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to remain faithful uh, when it may be uncomfortable, even difficult to do so, because Christ reigns, because our King rules. And we pray in his name. Amen.